Good morning, church. I love that hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will, go, will grow strangely, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I love that hymn, and it's so true. Well, I welcome you this morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, we had such a great time yesterday in preparation for the new school year as we stand at the uh, eve of that tomorrow. And I had to go and take my sons to get a haircut. And one of them, it was well, it went well. My oldest, Caleb, it went well. The youngest, it went well too. It also went well too. He, he, he got his cut and, you know, he had to get fresh for the new school year, you know, K-4 and all. And he gets home and says, Daddy, I look like Steph Curry. I said, all right. Well, all right. Well, then, man, I guess, I guess that's a good thing. Maggie said he sat so still in the chair, like, he, you know, he was such a good boy in the chair, and, and, and he behaved himself. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. And, but just really, really excited about this new school year and the absolutely wonderful job that, that, that our headmaster, Jerry, and his staff have done to prepare in the light of so much uh, difficulty to uh, be at this time, to be able to go with the school year. And he's done such a wonderful job, and I'm excited about it and just want to encourage you in any way that you can to serve not only the church, but also this school if you, if you can. I also got some exciting news. Um, September 10th is the start of a BFG program that we're putting together, Bible Fellowship Group. Really excited about that. Um, it is for young professionals from the ages of about 18 to maybe 35, 40, right in that age range, single, uh, married, with kids, out of college, whatever it is. We want to invite you to come out to that. It's going to be a great time of Christian community and fellowship, which is so vitally important uh, for us as we grow in Christ. And we want to be able to have that community. So that's September 10th, and I definitely want to invite you to come out to that and uh, be a part of that. Church, will you... Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, I come before you just, we come before you just praising you, God. The realization of what you have done through Jesus. God, we give you praise. Father, there was nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to secure our salvation, but you did it all, Lord God, in sending your son. And we give you praise for that. God, I pray that you would bless this time God, that you would quiet our hearts, that you would incline our ears to your word, O oh God, and that you would open the eyes of our heart that we may see and understand the truth of your word. Bless this time for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the second and last uh, uh, message uh, from this series, Shaped by Eternity, and I've entitled it, Aiming to Please Christ. Uh, last week, we, we spoke about the purpose uh, in suffering as we're shaped by eternity, that there's a purpose in suffering. And we said that God is actually using that to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We said that last week, when we suffer, it's important to know that God is able to deliver us from that suffering or sustain us in it. We also said that suffering emboldens our faith 
and that it, it, it gives us this confidence to share the gospel, seeing that God, through his power, brings us through difficulty or sustains us in difficulty. We want to go and tell others about that. But we also said that suffering in this life prepares us for the life to come. And so in, in light of that, I want to focus our attention this week on what I believe to be the goal for us as Christians. If you are saved, if you have trusted Christ, the goal is to aim to please him. And there's a qualitatively different reality in speaking about being shaped by eternity. There's a different reality in eternity than the reality we currently experience now. It is completely different. For the believer, this reality includes a gloriously resurrected body, as well as an eternal weight of glory, as I just said, beyond all comparison. But there, there's another aspect of this reality that is, that is quite sobering. Christians and non-Christians alike will one day stand before Christ, the judge, and give an account for the lives they lived in the body. For the believer, this judgment will not, I want to emphasize that, this judgment for the believer will not be to determine whether or not we're saved, but to evaluate how we lived our lives while on this earth. For the non-believer, it will be a judgment of condemnation where eternal punishment in hell will be the sentence handed out. It's a very sobering reality. But as Christians, what can we do about that? What can we do to impact that reality differently through the help of the Holy Spirit? Who can we share the good news of Jesus Christ with so they can hear it and know that there's a Savior that loves them? As Christians, the magnitude of this reality should not cause doubt about the redemptive security we have in Christ but rather should cause us to steward our lives in a way that pleases him. An eternal perspective means letting the reality of what is to come significantly influence what we do while we live in our bodies now. So our, our financial, our marital, our social, our professional, and our spiritual lives should all be brought under the lordship of Christ with an eternal awareness in mind. But you know, unfortunately, since we are still in this body, we do not always fulfill that goal as we should. But God, church, hear me, God is, God is gracious and he is faithful. Even when we fail, God is gracious and he is faithful. Scripture tells us in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God that we serve. When we fail and falter, God is abounding in steadfast love. And I think the most profound, I know the most profound display of God's love for us was, in, was demonstrated in the sending of his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. 
That was the most profound way that God could show us how much he loved us. I mean, the song says he gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. I was uh, with my friends the other night. I was sharing that verse with them. And, and one, of my, uh, one of my good friends said, man, I just don't know how, he could, how God could sacrifice his son. I just, you know, I, I couldn't do it. And, and, you know, we sat around and said, man, that, you know, that's a good point. But if you read verse 7 of Romans 5, it says maybe for a good person, you know, you might hope to die. You could die for somebody who's good, maybe. But look at what Jesus did. None of us are good. It's, it's, it's this idea that the, the soldier who jumps on the grenade to save his troops, those are his troops. Those are his comrades in arms. I'm going to save them. Jesus jumped on the grenade in the enemy's camp. He, 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 saved, he came to save sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That blows my mind. What is man that you are mindful of him, says the psalmist. Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sins by becoming sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The wonderful news of the gospel is that God made all the provisions necessary to prepare those who trust Christ to be with him forever. God, God did it all. He elected, he called, he regenerated, he justified and adopted us into his family through Christ. And through the Holy Spirit, he is sanctifying us to look more and more like Christ. And one day, our salvation will be complete in glorification, when we receive resurrection bodies that will eternally express the reality of the transformation wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Moreover, it is God who actually prepares us. God does this, prepares us to even stand before the judgment seat of Christ with full assurance that only our works will be evaluated and not our redemption. God does that. Scripture says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation. When you stand before God and your life is laid bare before him, you can trust God's word. There is, there is no condemnation there. I, want, I don't want you to miss the grace here because I am going to talk about the implications of that great judgment, that, the, the, the eternal, that eternal judgment, the the, what scripture calls the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to talk about that. But the penalty that we should have rightfully received for our sin has been completely and eternally paid for. Think about that. Think about, think about the magnitude of that. The, the penalty for our sin has been completely and eternally paid for. With such Church, with such amazing news. I mean, that's really, really good news. In a world filled with bad news, and North Korea this, and this is happening here, and, and all of this suffering. This is really, really good news. That Jesus paid it all. All of it. For us. With such amazing news as this, how can our aim not be 
to please him who died for our sin and was raised. How can that not be our aim? How can we continue to live for self and not for Jesus in light of all that he has done to secure our salvation? And church, listen, these are questions that, that I've had to ask myself. I, I, I've been looking at this text the last two weeks and it's just square in the face every day thinking about this reality. God, am I, am I living my life to please you? And, I, and again, my goal here is not to somehow legalistically guilt you into service for Christ, but to challenge you to consider the real implications of an eternal perspective. As Warren Wearsby noted, heaven was not simply a destination for Paul. It was a motivation. The reality of heaven motivated how Paul carried out his ministry and lived his life. Dr. Thomas Constable observes that the prospect, quote, the prospect of face-to-face fellowship with Jesus, Christ, should motivate us to please him out of love. And, and pleasing Christ, this is a running theme throughout the Pauline epistles, dare I say the New Testament. It, it, it's a running theme. It's Philippians 1.20, verse uh, 20 through 21 says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that will, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And you know that next verse. For to me, to live is what? Christ. That was to live is Christ. And to die is gain. You know it. Colossians 1.10 says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you may do so more and more. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, Paul says, I would not be a servant of Christ. Reformed theologian Philip Hughes said it this way. He said, to be well-pleasing to Christ is indeed the sum of all ambition, which is truly Christian, to 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 be well-pleasing to Christ is indeed the sum of all ambition, which is truly Christian. You know, church, as Christians, when the totality of our lives is added up at the judgment seat of Christ, will the sum equal an overarching ambition to please him? Will Will that be the sum of our life? Let that be said about us, church. I want to invite you to, to open your, your Bibles or turn them on. If you have iPads or whatever, either way, open them and find your way to and meet me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. The Bible says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, 
eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of God. This morning, church, I want to divide our text into two sections and make three observations from each section. And then I want to briefly discuss how we can aim to please Christ. What would that look like uh, on, in a day-to-day uh, understanding? So we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 10. And in verses 1 through 5, the three things I want us to see is, number one, the contrast of realities. Secondly, the conflict of realities. And then thirdly, the confirmation of God's promise. So if you look at the text, Paul is developing an idea that he started in chapter 4, verse 18. If you look at it in verse 18, Scripture says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the contrast of seen and unseen is evidenced by what Paul uses as earthly and heavenly. Paul was a tent maker. So he refers to this as we know this tent. A tent is a temporary vessel. It's a temporary thing. That would be what is seen. And by tent, he is referring to his body. You can see your body. You, you see it. But then for the unseen, he's talking about a building from God. Look at the verse. He says, for we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a building from God. You know, when you think about a tent, a tent is temporary. I remember when I was a kid, we, uh, at the church here, we were going to this church. They had a father and son camp out uh, that we went to. It was the first time I ever went camping with my dad and my brother. And, man, we had a good time. It was a lot of fun. Um, we, back then, it was the, I think, Royal Ambassadors, which is sort of like the church's version of the, the Boy Scouts. Um, and we went camping. And, you know, you, you get there, we got to this place, we set up the tent, and you go in the tent, it's temporary, you know that. Uh, it was cold, I think, I think it rained a little bit, but you were fully aware of the environment, like everything. We, and we had to sleep in that tent, but it was kind of uncomfortable. I mean, 
you know, you're dealing with bugs. You know, I think they even told you certain, you know, at, at the time they were like, if you want to stay warm, you got to sleep a certain way when you get in the sleeping bag and all this kind of stuff. But it was this idea that this, this, is, not, this is not home. Church, we are sojourners in this earth, on this earth. It is not our final home. And Paul is, is showing that here. He's saying this tent that is our, our present body, our, our human body. If, if that tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. Think about the permanence of a building. That's what the idea here is. It is permanence versus impermanence. The body is impermanent. It, as he says in verse 16 of the text in chapter 4, though our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day. We, we have this tent that is our body that will one day we will be separated from it. But God says we have a building from God. And the heavenly dwelling, again, notice that it's, it's from God. It is his doing. The fact that the heavenly dwelling is from God is actually what gives Paul the ability to endure suffering and affliction in the life, in the life that he's living. Scott Haifman notes that Paul's confidence in the coming eternal weight of glory cannot be shaken since it is based on what God himself will provide. God is going to provide this building that is not built with human hands, which is also what scripture references here. Not built with, this is not man's doing. You think about the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting, and it was temporary. They'd pack it up and they'd go to the next destination. But then you think about the, the temple that Solomon built. This, this permanent. And that's the contrast that I, I want you to see here, that as Christians, we do have a hope. We have a reality that is qualitatively, eternally different than what we experience now. But there's a conflict with these realities. Paul mentions that he groans in the earthly tent which is a metaphor for his body. And this groaning, the groaning mentioned here is not to imply despair or, or mournful agony or depression. That's not Paul's objective here. Look at the verse. He says, for in this tent we groan, but look at the next word, longing. There was a longing that he has. And that word longing is a strong desire, a hopeful desire. It is actually related to Paul's hopeful longing to put on this heavenly dwelling. This longing is evidence that God has promised more than just this life. That's a God-given longing that Paul has. I mean, you think about when you go, uh, if you have young kids, and you take them on a road trip, four hours, we're going to, you tell them, we're going to Disney, Magic Kingdom, and have a great time. Get in the car, everybody's happy. And 15 minutes later, are we there? And, it, and you see what I just did? And you say, no, we're, we're, we're not there yet. That, that, that's, what, that's the sign that Paul sort of has in mind here. It's, it's not one of, of despair. That will come. He's going to mention that in verse 4. But here, it's, it's this longing. Gosh, I, I want to be in this heavenly dwelling. Look at what he says. He says, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He, he's desiring that. He wants to put that on. And so there's this yearning for it in a sense. Paul longs to put on this heavenly dwelling so that 
he will not be found naked. And this verse, verse 3, is parenthetical. It's in between verses 2 and 4. Um, and as I studied it, uh, it was a lot of wrestling <laughs> with the text and trying to figure out what was going on here. It's a difficult text in that not being found can refer to two things. It either refers to a lack of bodily existence, i.e. spirits without bodies, or it can be seen as a metaphor for not being condemned by God in the final judgment. Those are the sort of two op options there. But based on the context of the passage, it seems that Paul is referring to a disembodied state, right? Or a soul stripped of its body. According to David E. Garland, the immediate context suggests that being naked refers to a disembodied state. Paul is looking forward to the day when his spirit would be reunited with his body in a new resurrection body. Scripture does not go into great detail or description about this sort of interim period between death and when we're redeemed with these new bodies, when we, when we receive the resurrection body. There's not a lot of detail in Scripture about that interval of time. But here's what Scripture does affirm. It affirms that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Nowhere in Scripture is there mention of an intermediate body. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And there's also no mention of soul sleep. This doctrine that when you die, your soul is in sort of like a coma until the resurrection and you receive your new body. That's not taught in Scripture either. So basically, Paul has a yearning, a longing. But then look at verse 4. In verse 4, the second groan mentioned is different than the first one. See, in this groan, he's fully aware of the burden of being in his earthly tent and how susceptible it is to the struggles with sin, to pain, and to decay. Look at what he says. He says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan. Look at the next two words, being burdened. In Romans 7:24, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul does not have a desire to, to get rid of his present body, but to clothe over it the immortality of the building from God, especially with the prospect. And then when Paul is writing this, he wrote this with the idea that he would still be around when Christ came back. And so it's with this prospect of having Jesus return, Paul would still be in the earthly body so that what is mortal, the flesh, the body, the earthly body will be swallowed up by life. Paul has a desire for that to happen. But if you look at verse 5, this is where I want you to see the confirmation of God's promise. God is the one who accomplishes it. Verse 5 says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. What very thing? What thing is Paul talking about there? He's talking about that clothing event, that heavenly dwelling, that building from God. Paul is realizing that that is from God. God does that. God accomplishes that. Paul says God has prepared us for this very thing. The word prepared there literally means God has rendered one fit for a thing. God has made us fit to be able to enjoy him forever in heaven. God does that. To prove that God fully intended to carry out what he has prepared for us, God gave us 
the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The word guarantee carries it a concept of a down payment. Maggie and I are in the process of trying to, to purchase a home, and that, that's a very interesting uh, prospect in this market. It, it's very challenging. But, you know, we're hopeful. We, we trust God. But there's this idea that when you do find a, a home you like, you have to put a, a down payment on it. And what does that down payment tell the person? It says, hey, I'm serious about honoring this agreement. And to show you that I really am going to make good on that promise, I'm going to put this money forth to show you how serious I am. That's what God did with the Holy Spirit. God in the whole, giving us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee is giving us a foretaste of what heaven is really like by putting heaven in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We get a foretaste of what that is like. And we have that guarantee that everything Paul just said about this building, this heavenly dwelling, everything about that, we know it's true because God gave a down payment for it in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, because of that promise, that down payment, that the, the Holy Spirit that indwells you if you're a believer, because of that, look at verse 6. There is a confidence that Paul has. Verse 6 says, so we are always of good courage. We know, look at that, always of good courage, which literally means confident. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. He has that confidence of that. He knows that. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. The faith there is in the promise of what God has done in giving us the Holy Spirit. We're walking, Paul says, we walk by things that we can't see instead of by things that we can. But look at this world that we live in. What are you placing your confidence in? Is it money? The world places confidence in money, in success, notoriety. And they think that that is what's going to provide security. Paul's, Paul's idea here is, no, we walk by faith in something that we cannot see. You can't see the Holy Spirit in you. That's, that's unseen. And we walk by faith in that. We walk by faith in what God has done, not by sight. And it's so easy to think that what this world has to offer is going to provide security tranquility and ease. But the things of this world are transient. They're, they're temporary. They're passing. There is something much, much greater ahead that we have to look forward to. And I, I had to think about that. What, what am I? Is it the house, Lord? Am I, what am I? And again, don't, don't misunderstand. I, I know that we, we need a home. We need money to buy groceries and these things that Absolutely. But are we putting our faith in things in an idolatrous way that they'll somehow deliver or, or sustain us instead of putting our faith in what God has done in us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the sending of his Holy Spirit to dwell within us? Are we putting our confidence in that? Is that the thing that we're banking on? That's what Paul says here. He says, we, we walk by faith. Not by sight. 
And then he repeats it again. Yes, we are of good courage. We are of good courage. We're confident. I mean, we would rather, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I mean, Paul says that again in Philippians 1.23. He would rather be with the Lord. Because there is a reality that is comforting. But Paul knows that, and if you look at the text in 123 of Philippians, he's here for the church's sake. I'm here for your behalf. I'm here for your spiritual benefit. But we have confidence. We have confidence that God is able. We have confidence that even though we go through difficulty, God is there. He wants to be at home with the Lord and The idea in verse 9, which is kind of the whole idea of this eternal perspective. What is it that we're allowing to shape our lives? That's the whole point to this sermon series. Verse 9, Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul's aim is to please Christ. That's what he sees as important. The, the, The suffering And the affliction that he goes through, all of that is with the idea of knowing that my aim, I'm going to go through this so that I can please Jesus. That's my focus. That's what I want my life to mean. And I mean, as you look at your life, is that our aim? Do we have that desire to, to please him? Not out of legalism and, oh, here's another rule I got to check off. Got to go to church on Sunday. Let me get the old, let me get the Bible out. Check that off. I read it. Don't understand really what I read, but I read it. You know, man, I got that coworker. Oh, gosh, I don't want to talk to him. This person is probably not saved. What is our aim in this life? What do we think this life can really bring us? And again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting, you know, this sort of monastic, well, I'm just going to completely separate, you know. Paul does say, or Scripture does say, we want to be in the world, but not of the world. And as we're in this world, our aim, our focus, the bullseye, the target we're trying to hit is to please Jesus in, in, in everything we do. As the song said, as I quoted it this morning, the things of this world will, will grow strange, like strangely dim, the more our aim is to focus on him, realizing all that he has accomplished for us, everything that he has done out of gratitude and out of love and obedience to to please him. What is our aim this morning? What is the focus? Do we have a vision of eternity that shapes how we live, that shapes if we're going to go to that coworker and, and tell him about Christ or, or go across the street to our neighbor and say, hey, man, you know, let, let's, let's, go get, let's go get something to drink. Let's go, let's go get some coffee or whatever. Man, can I help you do something? That aim with the, with the mindset of I'm looking for that opportunity. Where is it at? Where is it at? And, you know, you might not have that motivation this morning. And what that might mean is you might need to pray. I I, I might not have that motivation tomorrow when I wake up. Gosh, Lord, I I don't know. There's that sigh, the burden. 
I want to be with you. I might not have that devotion to, to, to go and, and, and speak the gospel to somebody else. I need to pray and ask the Lord, God, give me a passion for people. Give me that desire for people to share the good news of the gospel with them. That was Paul's aim. It's why he could endure all of the affliction and adversity and difficulty that he went through. With that single aim in mind, we make it our aim to please him. The word aim there is actually ambition. Paul's ambition in life was to please Christ. That was his ambition. Well, look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is the conclusion. This is it. This is the totality of life. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And listen, you can get into the discussions about amillennialism, premillennialism, pre-trib, post-premillennialism. I can't even say it. You can get into all of that debate. Here's what's clear in each of those concepts. A day of judgment. It will come. It is going to happen. And again, for the believer, thank God. We have security knowing that we've trusted Christ. We have that security. And that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, remember, Scripture says there is therefore now no condemnation. But there is going to be an evaluation of how we lived our lives. What did we do with the life that we had? What did we do with the money that we were given? Given, because it's not ours. Every good and perfect gift cometh from above, from the Father of lights. It's not ours. What did we do with that house? What did we do with that car? And this is not legalism. You're not being evaluated to gain your salvation in any way. But look at the text. The Bible says, so that he may receive what is due. There are rewards in heaven. And it's not that we're working to... Get those rewards in a sense. I mean, I don't want to make this sound that way, but there, that is a reality. There are rewards in heaven. And the way we, with that in mind, that eternal perspective in mind, I believe should shape what we do, how we use what God has given to us. That term judgment seat is the term bima, and it refers to a, a raised platform which would have been familiar to the Corinthians because Paul was at plenty of them. Uh, in Acts 18.12, he, he appears before the, the, the governor. I think it's Gallio is the governor. Jesus also appeared at this uh, tribunal when he stood before Pilate. And I always thought that was interesting that the judge of the universe is standing to be judged before Pilate. And Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to either set you free or crucify you? And Jesus said, you would not have any authority except that which has been given to you from above. Jesus is the authority here. But even there, the fact that he would do that, that he would stand there, that he would be there and be, have this judgment levied on him. And as a lamb before a shearer is silent, so not that he opened his mouth. He did that for us. But that's the reality of it, that one day we will receive 
what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. And the word evil there is not speaking of sins because we know our sins have already been paid for at Calvary. That word is really worthless. Things that just didn't matter. All of it will be laid bare before Christ. And so, church, what I, what I want you to see is that reality should, should motivate how we live. It should shape what we do, not in fear of condemnation. I mean, think about it. Don't you want to hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into your rest? I mean, who, whose approval are we looking for? Whose approval matters? Is it, is it man's approval? Man, great car. Man, great house. Got a lot of money. You're the man. So what? So what? At the end of the day, at the end of all days, we got to stand before Christ. And, 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 and don't we want that approval more? And so shouldn't that cause us to aim now to please him? James says, Our, your, your life is but a, it's a vapor. It's gone. Only one life to live, and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Do you believe that this morning? So much so that you would leave these doors, go out and live like that? I'm saying it to myself too, church. Trust me. So then, what does this all mean? What is the application here? To please Christ, we must be intentional. Our Thursday night theology class, which, by the way, if you don't come out, please join us. Every other Thursday, 6.30 to 8.30, Pastor Andrew uh, does an amazing job. We have great discussion. But he made the point, are, are we living intentional lives? To please Christ, you have to put yourself in a position to please Christ. You have to be intentional about how you go about your day-to-day. -day. Uh, a month ago, we were pulling out of church, get to the gas station, pull in, just like, oh, you know, just like normal, fill up the tank with gas, get ready to get going. The car wouldn't start. It's hot. Had to take the jacket off, and probably should have did now, but... It's hot out there. I'm at the Chevron right here. Car won't start. So now we got to call the tow truck to come in and, and figure out what's wrong. I tried to jump, start the car, nothing. Got to call the tow truck. And I'm thinking, God, what, really? That groan that Paul was talking about, that I was groaning right there. It was like, oh, come on. You know, I'm hungry. I want to get home. I want to you know, be with the fam and just chill. It's like, no. You're going to wait in this hot gas station for the tow truck to come. And I sent, you know, my, 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 thankfully my mom and dad were, they were with us and they, they took the boys and Maggie home. And there I was. And in drives this tow truck driver. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, there's an opportunity here. There's a real opportunity here. And, and church, I'm just as nervous as probably some of you are in those opportunities. Because I'm thinking to myself, okay, what do I what do I say? What do I do? How, how do I engage this man about Jesus? What can I say to him? You know? But 
I'm wanting to be intentional. I'm looking at the, what he has on his, um, his truck. Says something about family. Uh, and I know that I've got to drive with this man for 20 minutes back to my house with the car. What am I going to do? He's going to sit there and just... You good? You good? Yeah, I'm good too. All right, great. Or, or, I'm going to share Christ with this guy. And I did, and I said, man, do, do, do you, know, you know about Jesus? And, if, man, those words came out so, do, do, do you know about Jesus? Because <laughs> like, you just know the world's like, oh, don't, don't tell me about Jesus. I don't want to hear about Jesus. And it's like, so nervous. And he said, yeah, you know, my mother, she saved. You know, she believes. I said, yeah, that's great for your, for your mom. What about you? Jesus died for you. He loves you. He gave his life for you. Be intentional, church. Have a plan. Secondly, church, we got to be available. We got to be available. It, it is pleasing. Hebrews 10.25. It was our verse for the year last year. It says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging us. Church, we need each other. The one thing I took from that Bible study we did, uh, need, uh, we are needy and we are needy, side by side. We are needy and we are needed. We need each other. When you're here, you're a resource. You are a spiritual resource to somebody. Somebody can use your help or you could use somebody's help. Be available. Be here. So when we have these events that we, we put together, the BFG or the, the Wednesday night Bible study or what have you, come to them. Be edified in them. Enjoy that Christian community. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We need each other to do this. This is the body of Christ. We got to be we got to be available, church. But finally, to please Christ, we must be obedient. We got to be obedient. Jesus said, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? If you, if you love me, your aim is to please me, obey my commands. If you love me, you'll, you'll obey my commands. We've got to be obedient, church. And how do we find out what God's commands are in Scripture? Which goes right back to we got to be in Scripture. To find out how to please God is in Scripture. we got to be obedient. It, it, it is this idea that our whole life, and again, I know it's a process. You're not going to walk out that door and be perfect. You, 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 it's not going to happen. We are being, being conformed to the image of Christ. We are being sanctified. That's the process that we live in. But is the aim to please Christ? Is that our aim? Is that, does, our eternal, does our eternal perspective have that aim? I want to conclude with a quote that I think says it all. If we learn to live as Paul did with the judgment seat of Christ before us, we will not be men pleasers, but we will be Christ pleasers. Church, let's be Christ pleasers. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus.
God, you're worth it. You're worth it. You're worth everything, Lord God. May we see that. You gave it all for us. You gave us your son as a sacrifice for our sin. God, there's nothing we could do to repay that debt. But God, help us to live our lives in a way that is desirous of wanting to please you, God. Help us to desire to please you, to please Christ with our life. Let that be our eternal perspective. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.